Welcome to Amplify Your Process Safety, the podcast that provides the experience and expertise you need when it comes to process safety and risk management. Our hands-on approach will give you the insight needed, whether you're new to industry or process safety, in a role where you interact with aspects of process safety, or an experienced process safety professional. Join us in our mission to protect people, the companies they work for, and the communities where they operate by making process safety knowledge available to all. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Amplify Your Process Safety podcast. This is Rob Bartlett, and this episode of the podcast, I'm happy to be joined by Monica Philippart. Monica is a human factors engineer who has worked at some really amazing places. She's worked for NASA. In fact, she's done human factors training at all of their facilities. She also, in her time in that industry, worked for uh, worked for Boeing as well as the United Space Alliance, which is the contractor that worked with the space shuttle program back in the day. She also was a senior industrial engineer at Disney. She was an adjunct instructor at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Now, however, since around 2006, she owns her own company called Ergonomic Human Factors Solutions. And as if that, all of that wasn't enough, after BP's Deepwater Horizon catastrophe, uh, she was appointed by the Department of Justice to the Process Safety Monitoring Team. And quoting from some information about that, the team's mandate was to review on behalf of the probation officer and the DOJ, BP's process safety major accident risks, and risk management in deep water Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so I imagine there definitely are some stories to go along with that experience. And recently, she became a member of a brand new Gulf Offshore Energy Safety Board, which just met actually yesterday, and we're recording this in March. So she, uh, she may bring that up as well. And one fun fact that I want to bring up is that Monica has a business raising Iberian pigs, which I find very fascinating as a side project for somebody who is a, a human factors engineer. So welcome, Monica. Thanks for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's start off at the very beginning, which is what do you mean by human factors? And then maybe a little bit of, you know, how did you get into becoming a human factors engineer? I will start with my favorite definition because there are many. Yeah. So this is what I find the most simple, although it's long, but it's simpler to understand <laughs> and comprehensive. So human factors is the application of knowledge about human capabilities and limitations to system, equipment, job, or environment design and development to achieve efficient, effective, comfortable, and safe performance with minimum cost, manpower, skill, and training. Wow, that's a mouthful. It is a mouthful, <laughs> but it really, if you, it's, it's so broad. It has so many applications that really, if you divide it into the chunks, you know what it is and what it serves and what's the, what is the main objective, which is several objectives, yeah. then I find this not that not as complicated as it sounds. As it sounds. Valid. So how did you, so we'll get into that a little bit. And of course, you know, our focus here in the, on this podcast, you know, I was listening to that definition and, you know, and you said safety, right? I mean, that's what, that's mm -hmm. what we focus on here is process safety, of course, but you know, this, this certainly has applications, um, you know, in, in obviously a wide variety of, of 
things outside of what we of the chemical industry or refineries, you know, that we normally deal with with process safety. So, uh, but I, I guess maybe how did you get into doing um, human factors as a profession? Well, I since I was in grade school, I remember watching my mom struggle to set up the VCR to record. You know, in, back in the day, you had to select I remember the, day, that. the channel, yeah. the time, and we would inevitably get PM mixed up with AM or the wrong channel or whatever. And I remember thinking, there has to be an easier way. And it was just something that came to me naturally, watching people struggle through using things. And, and that became something I, I really wanted to figure out how to do. Then, I mean, I wanted to make things easier for people to use. Then in high school, um, I came to the United States. I, I'm from Spain originally. That's one fun fact, maybe. Although yes, once I you hear my yeah, accent, it's not. I should, have, <laughs> I, should have, I should have included where you're from. Absolutely. Go ahead. So, yes. so, so, you, so you came here in, uh, in high school? For my senior year in high school, oh, okay. yes. And um, I was invited to visit the University of Minnesota, and I was uh, invited to visit three departments that I have my choice. And one of the ones I chose was the airspace department. And I saw a model that they had about the um, uh, designing space craft, living quarters and things like sure. that. And I thought that would be so cool, applying the, the use... The word usability wasn't in my mind at the time, but I just knew that I wanted to make things easier and I, to use. And I figured how much more challenging will it be to design things in small spaces and uh, no gravity. And you can only bring with you so many things, things. So yeah, little, right. And that's where I started to hone in to applying these things that I wanted on making things easier to use into particularly the space. And I was just kept asking around, how would you call, what would I study to do this? And I got uh, a lot of people suggesting that I study psychology because at the time there were aviation psychology uh, did a lot of things with cognit cognition and making things easier to understand and things like that. But I wanted it more physical, more okay the usability stuff. But again, the term usability wasn't as common as it is now. It wasn't so really a thing yet, right? Yeah. Right, right. So then I was really good with numbers, physics, math, and all that. And I, I liked engineering. So I went into aerospace engineering. And I ended up graduating in mechanical engineering because it had more a broader application. Mm -hmm. Still asking around about well, how would I call this thing? And then I heard ergonomics. That was the first time I heard the term ergonomics. Okay. And that was about th making things easier to use. So then I knew, um, I found out that you could get a master's degree in the ergonomics field. Okay. So, but that's, that, that was the beginning. Okay. So, okay. So you, so you went into, so you got your master's in ergonomics. Actually, I got it. Well, if you look at the definition that I gave you so long, yeah. the end says to achieve efficient, effective. Those are the first two words. Yeah. That, that way, I think you can see that it would be a specialty of industrial engineering, which is yeah. about efficiency and effectiveness, cheaper, yeah. better, faster, right? Yeah. So to that, you inject the comfort and minimum uh, manpower, minimum skill, minimum training, and making things easier to use. And that 
that was like, yes, this and is that, what so, I've been so looking that, for. So, so, so you found like you'd been look, lo, you'd found what you've been looking for since you're since watching your mother try to program the VCR essentially. Exactly, right? that's right. And I do, I do remember those days, and I remember how many of my, how many of my relatives just had blinking twelve o'clock on their. <laughs> on their VCRs because they couldn't figure it out. So uh, yes. I think they probably needed, I, th I think they needed you back in the seventies and the early eighties when VCRs were first coming out. I think it, it probably would have helped a, would have helped a lot. So, okay. So, so um, I think, you know, you and I have talked before about how we could spend a whole podcast probably just talking about the different experiences at these really cool places that you've worked, but I do want to focus on the, on the human factors. So, you know, I'm familiar with ergonomics. I think a lot of people are familiar with ergonomics and, you know, rep repetitive jobs and, you know, typing and all that stuff. What differentiates ergonomics from human factors that we're really talking about here? What's the difference there? Well, it really depends on where you are in the world and the specialties of the people or the background of the people you speak to. So in some areas, those two terms are used interchangeably. In Europe, okay. ergonomics is more the term that we use here in the United States for human factors. But we are in the United States, and over here, the main difference is that that is typically among us in the field. Ergonomics is more the physical, the comfort, the cumulative trauma disorder, the being able to reach, more the anthropometry, which is the body dimensions, <clears throat> more on that side. And the human factors, is left more to the uh, human error, human performance, cognitive side, the understanding. That's generically how it's seen. What the difference is. Yes. So when I think of human factors and process safety, you know, we're, we're talking about a lot of times about how that interaction of the, the human to, to the process and the equipment and everything can cause a catastrophic incident, can cause loss of life, et cetera, et cetera. Which totally, you know, which is different than, than what we think of as, as ergonomic. When you're talking about human factors, like what are the things that humans are doing or, or is there a way to, that, that you th think about the way humans interact with systems that kind of puts uh, some sort of, of format or some structure around the science itself and, and, and what people should be looking at? Now, whether they're, whether they're talking about, you know, as part of a process hazard analysis or as part of a, you know, an incident investigation for something that already happened, um, you know, how how do you how do you start putting some structure around the way that humans are interacting with their systems when you think of human factors? Basically, the best way is to think about how we process information. So it's really a, a cycle there, a yep. non-going loop. If that's what yep. the word I'm looking for. It's a loop. Yep. But putting a starting point, let's just say first you receive information. So we receive information through the senses. We can hear, we can taste, and taste even gives you information. You can taste poison. You sure. can taste something, you know, <laughs> you know. But but in the process safety environment. Same thing with you, same thing with smell. Yes, yes, it gives you important information. So the first step is that in, in the interaction. Once you receive the information, you need to be able to process it. And there are two parts to processing information. There's interpreting and being able to analyze that. So, for example, after you've received the smell, if yeah. you don't know that that smell, if you think it's rotten eggs, but in fact it's a leak, right? Yeah. Yeah. That interpret ability to interpret allows you 
to then go to part two of processing, which is deciding, right? Yeah. You in, you receive information, you interpret it, and then you make a decision. Do I need to do something about it or not? So do I or, need to act? Do I do I need to act or not? Okay. Yes. And yeah. if you act, how do you go about it? Is it something I need to run about run away from, or do I need to tell somebody? You know, that would be the what could happen. Yeah. And then after you process information, you perform the action. That's mm -hmm. separate than deciding. You could decide to do something, but you may be able or not to perform. The performing is the physical part of being able to escape where you're trying to get away from or being able, like if you know you need to turn a valve, shut it off. Can yeah. you, is your hand slipping or yeah. is it too tight? You know, that, that's the, the next step. And then once you perform, you provide the receiving part of the system. The, the system receives your input after yeah. you have performed. So okay. let's say you're driving a car, you decide you're going to take to break, to step yeah. on the brake, the car receives that, it processes whatever, it, it breaks or it doesn't, it yeah. performs, and then you again receive feedback from whatever part of the system, that yeah. car, for example, is it slowing down fast enough or not? Yeah. Cetera, is it slipping or not? And then again, you process, you perform. So then the you go, we, we go through that loop again and again. Yes. Until so like a, we're out of it. Well, no, you're never really out. You, you could be out of a specific one, but yes. it's a continuous loop. It's also, you have to consider it's in the context of an environment. Yes. So there are other things. It could be wet. It could be gray. It could be raining. It could be a stressful environment. There are many uh, dimensions to that well, could, environment. You, you could also have more than one of these loops going on at the same time, right? I get exactly. I get a smell, but then I also get an auditory for uh, alarm for you know for something else that may be going on. So now I'm as one person trying to deal with two loops at the same time. I mean, is that something that you get into? Exactly. Well, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to say next. Not only yeah. is it continuous loop, there are multiple loops going on. You could have several things that you're listening to, that you're smelling, that you're tasting, touching, things vibrating, that you're seeing. So it's, and we're used to many of them. And some of them, that's why you can tune out, yeah. but your training, your experience, your background, and then as individuals, you're, that's what differentiates us from animals and from machines. The same person can interpret and receive information differently from one day to the next for no obvious reason. You just, you just <laughs> feel different that day and yeah. you just. Well, I, you know, it's funny because even, I mean, outside of if this, you know, this is a, kind of related and maybe it is, maybe it is, it's a human factor. But when, when I do PHAs or when I do audits and then I go back and I read like, you know, what I, what I wrote or what I, you know, what I, the assessment I did as part of the audit, there's many times where I'm like, I, I'm reading that and I, I understand what I was saying, but I have no idea why I did it that way. Like, mm -hmm. like, like today, today I would do it this way. Whereas, you know, whatever, two years ago, I did it that way. Um, so, so if, if we're, if we're in, inundated, maybe, right. If we're, mm -hmm. if we're dealing with all of these inputs and all of these loops all over the place, how do we, from a process safety standpoint, as people whose job it is, is to prevent catastrophic incidents based on human factors, how do we deal with that? Because you're talking about like, you know, you, you know, my response could be different today than it was yesterday. But, you know, I've got, 
you know, we've got, you know, I'm a manager. I've got four or five different people who fill the role of operator for this one particular area. Each one of them could react differently to various inputs and all that. So, so how do you, how do you deal with that? You know, what are some of the ways that, that people can um, reduce the risk by focusing on human factors? Well, one of the things that's important is the awareness. Just the fact that you're aware that you're prone to error. Everybody is prone to error every day, even on things that are automated. But there are different types of error. There are different levels of probability of making an error depending on different things. There's that attention is um, like you you were about to say the word overloaded, right? Yeah before and and that deals with attention there is a limit of how much attention we have so knowing that you can organize tasks you can organize how you provide information and when you schedule things there are various things and that's why it's important to have an expert in the field because the more you know the more you can address these things in advance well that cycle that we just went through the Mm -hmm. receiving information processing and all that there are specific types of errors that can happen at each of those stages. So there are perception errors, interpretation errors, decision-making errors, action execution errors, and those are known in the field. And that's, that's why it's important to have a human factors, like not somebody who knows about human factors and knows about the importance. I mean, it's, Obviously, it's helpful if you have a background in that, but if what you're trying to achieve is proper management, proper human error management, you need somebody who understands the different types of errors, the environment, and all these things that the discipline brings. And for that, you need a degree. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you you, you know, human factors, OSHA and EPA both require human factors to be part mm-hmm. of a process hazards analysis. And in... Uh, in my experience, that has mostly been via a checklist, which is fairly mm-hmm. generic, which usually, you know, which usually is just something done in addition to like the main part of the PHA, which is considered to be the HAZOP or something like that. So having people who know what all these different sources of failure are must really allow us to be able to focus on, you know, kind of like even outside of of the of the PHA process. Let me back up. I guess there's 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 kind of two ways I see this, and I think that, and we've talked about it a little bit, is is beforehand and after, right? So mm-hmm. you want to be considering these things as you're designing your processes, or maybe designing changes that you're going to make to your existing processes. But then it also can come in to try to understand when doing investigations, right? Right, right. So let me back up a little bit to what sure. you said regarding the requirements from OSHA and everything. Because they, the requirement is to consider human factors, and that's right. about it. Yep. So then it's up to each organization. And many organizations start by, okay, well, who knows something about human factors? Okay, here's a checklist. Can you? It's usually a volunteer effort, somebody who's interested in the topic or somebody's assigned to do it. And those who want to hire somebody, they'll look for a human factor specialist, human factors expert. And a human factors expert is not a human factors expert, is not a human factors expert. Right. It's like a doctor is not a doctor is not a doctor. So sure. you don't go to the doctor if you know that you can't see well, you go to an optometrist. Right. Or if a tooth hurts, you don't go to a doctor, you go to a dentist. Yep. So, and, and in that sense, unfortunately, it's 
not as easy to hire somebody. You need to know what you're doing. But now to get to the point that you were talking about, the difference between designing something, incorporating human factors to prevent accidents or to prevent problems versus uh, you you already had an accident or a close call or a near miss or however, yeah. there are many terms for that, yeah. then it is important to be able to investigate properly to get to the root cause. And we know that in many cases, it's well established now that many of the in the 90%, it really depends on who you speak to and what data you gather, but it's in the 90th percentile that human error is a factor. And many times the cost ends up being human error. Somebody made a mistake. But there needs to be further analysis to determine why did the person make a mistake? What led this person to believe at the time that they were doing the right thing? Because most of the time, that's, that's actually, I wanted to give you the definition of human error. Okay, go for it. If you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, human error is, and this is again, like with the human factors definition, yeah. it can be Very really long. broad. But this, oh, uh, this one, there we go. <laughs> I picked a short one here. <laughs> okay, all right, buckle up. An intentional failure to produce desired results. Okay. And the key word here, the key word in the human error is unintentional. You didn't mean to do something, or you meant to do it, but not that way or not at that time, or you were too late, or you intended to do what you did, but you didn't mean to produce the results that, that it produced. So it's quite more okay. complicated. Right. Well, yeah, that. I mean, people, people aren't going to make a choice to make a mistake and blow up the plant, right? They're not going right. to make that choice. Now, they exactly. could make a choice to do a shortcut that they don't know is going to blow up the plant or cause some other bad thing to happen. Okay, so that's so so that is that's human error and so when you're doing investigations like you were asking, yes. yep. that's what you're looking for. You're looking for what led to this person to unintentionally do what resulted in what they didn't want or to perform the action they intentionally performed, what led them to that? That's what the key is of injecting or in integrating human factors into investigations. Right. Digging and you know, so, so well, digging deeper. Yeah. So many times <clears throat> in my experience, anyway, when you get to human error, you kind of stop and you say, well, okay, what's our corrective action? We need to train that person yes. better or we need to yeah. do more training or whatever. And I think what you're saying is that there really needs to be an, a, a, a separate analysis of, okay, a human factor, but keep digging. And I think what, what you bring to that table is a, a, a methodology, kind of a more formal methodology. I mean, most, most of the time in, in plants that I've worked in or worked with, you know, you, you've got engineers and supervisors and, you know, and management in the room and probably some operators in the room, but you certainly don't have people that have any sort of a formal way of thinking these things through. And that's really what you bring to the table, I think, right, is you bring that that form formalized process of thinking through and going from, OK, we had a human error caused this problem or going upstream to the design or PHA side, you know, we have something that could happen due to human error and you bring your, your toolkit to that, to that and mm -hmm. actually kind of dissect it to, all right, what really can we do here other than just retrain the operator? Right. Because human error is predictable or right. error, not, not error likely situations are predictable. 
and therefore they're manageable and therefore they're preventable. You can put barriers and controls in place because we know what people are likely to do. And you also know when there is a possibility that something happens. So, so, so there's another piece of PHAs and, and I want to start to wrap up a little bit, but, 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 I, but there's another piece of PHAs that is very similar to human factors and that's the facility siting. Right. So so you need to consider you need to consider facility siting. And for a long time, basically, that was done with a checklist mm -hmm. that, you know, are 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 your you know, are your processes far enough apart? You know, could 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 your, your ventilation system, you know, impact one of the other buildings? So there was a, a list of facility siting issues similar to what we what we do right now with human factors. But over the years, a process was developed to really dig more deeply into facility siting. So now you have people like Baker Risk or somebody like that doing actual facility siting assessments. And you get a report that's inches thick with all of the scenarios and the calculations and all that stuff. Is that where, I mean, do you see human the whole human factors field? Do you see that moving in that direction for something like the chemical industry? Or are we still kind of in this thing where it's like, well, if a if an organization you know is kind of enlightened and understands the risks, they would pull somebody like you in. But but there's really no you know groundswell of movement kind of toward a more formal assessment you know that you'd be able to do. Where, what do you where do you think we are with that? It really varies by organization. Based okay. on my experience, some people they not people organizations have um, really embraced and started human factors internal group in-house and others prefer to just hire consultants others continue to use their own checklist that they can print from online the conclusion is that it really depends on each organization's budget the size of the organization what their focus is if they have um, more complex or not such a complex system. So I really can't provide advice or I can't, it, it's, it, the question you gave me was very general. So there's really no answer, not one short answer for that. Okay, okay. but what I can say though, is that you know, we know that you know, process safety is an investment because if you do have any sort of catastrophic incident, fatality, any, you know, you know there oh. are significant, significant costs. So, so yes. human, so human factors certainly is another one of those things where, if you think of it as an invest, as an investment, and look at look at the real potential costs and also risk. I mean, it it comes down to risk. Then you know, I think you certainly can see that there definitely would you need to do like a full blown human factors, you know, an assessment analysis, whatever you would call it on everything. No, probably not. But your high risk things. Yeah, maybe that might be where you spend spend some more time. So, um, right. I was going to say process safety aims to prevent and control incidents that have the potential to release hazards that could result in serious and desired outcomes. Therefore, adequate human error management is indispensable for comprehen uh, comprehensive process safety management. You just have to prioritize risks and according to your budget and according to the type of operation you have, then decide where, where it's worth it for you. Where to, where to invest. All right, good. Yes. Well, I, I think that probably is a good place to, to stop. Um, we may need to have a follow-up to get into, because I'm definitely interested in this and maybe a little bit more of a technical 
discussion of you know of what are so what are some of the causes of errors and what what can we do to prevent those or what should we be thinking of about to prevent those things um, so maybe we can have you back for a, for a part two sometime soon is there anything you want to say uh, any just to wrap things up re regarding you know using human factors or, th or thinking of human factors you know for for people in the audience hmm. that it's super a super interesting field <laughs> that it yeah. has so many benefits you cannot go wrong applying it and maybe I was just telling this to my husband yesterday many people think oh human fact do we really have to add human fact it's going to take more time it's going to delay <laughs> everything it, because you don't see but it feels like it's if you don't use human factors it would be like putting on your boots and going on running on a hike without tying them Right. You, you stop to tie them up. It's a pain, you know, it delays you, but then your whole hike, your foot is, it's working better, you know? Well, so, and you're not tripping, and you're not tripping over your shoelaces. <laughs> yes. Yes. So. I, All right. Well, I, I think, I think that's, I think that's a, a good place to start. If, if people want to learn about you, Monica, do you have a website? They can find you on LinkedIn, I'm sure. Right. Yes, LinkedIn, and then LinkedIn can give information give to my everything. website. But right. that's so yes. we'll so we'll we'll and we'll include that in the show notes. So thank you for uh, thank you for being on the podcast. Appreciate it, and thank you listeners for listening. We hope that you learned a lot today, and maybe we're introduced to something that you uh, you've heard of and maybe don't know a lot about. I think the whole the whole um, idea of there being a loop. And thinking of things as 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 these these systems of loops, at least for me, kind of brings human factors into a little bit more clarity. Again, it's a whole field, so I'm certainly not going to be an expert at it. But we do. I appreciate you, uh, listeners. Appreciate you listening. As always, we would love it if you would uh, give us feedback, and you can do that on on Apple's podcasts or iTunes. Um, you can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora. Any other place that you can that you download your podcasts, and if you would like to reach out to us, you can always reach out, out to us on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn, or you can send us an email at podcast at amplifyconsultants.com. With that, I will say goodbye and be safe out there. Thanks. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Amplify Your Process Safety. Head to our website, AmplifyConsultants.com, to find our show notes and other resources. Thank you for joining us in our mission to ultimately save lives by advancing process safety right here on Amplify Your Process Safety. Until next time.